36 degrees Celsius wet bulb. If you're outside being a soldier, you will die. All right, that's the bottom line. Adaptation is managing the unavoidable and mitigation is avoiding the unmanageable. China has a plan. They have a plan and they're weaponizing, if you will, their climate change initiatives. Welcome to The Convergence, the Army's Mad Scientist podcast. I'm Matt Sandisbert of the Mad Scientist team, and I'll be joined in just a moment by Luke Shabro, Deputy Director of Mad Scientist. Mad Scientist is a U.S. Army initiative that continually explores the future of warfare, challenges assumptions, and collaborates with academia, industry, and government. You can connect with us through Twitter, at ArmyMadSci, or subscribe to the blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. On today's episode, we'll be talking with Mr. Richard Kidd, Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Environment and Energy Resilience. He'll be talking with us today about threats to the force from climate change, operating conditions in a worsening climate, and how the Department of Defense can be proactive in this existential fight. As always, the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Defense, Department of the Army, Army Futures Command, or Training and Doctrine Command. Let's get started. Thanks for coming on the show, sir. Hey, thanks. It's great to be here. So, sir, you've been a senior executive in the Department of State, Department of Energy, the U.S. Army, and the DOD since 2007, and you're now the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Environment and Energy Resilience. Can you tell our audience what being a senior executive is all about uh, and a little more about your current position? Sure. No, thanks. Well, the the Senior Executive Service was created by President Carter in the 1970s, and and the intent was sort of much like you have general officers in the the military, is the senior executives were supposed to have a level of expertise and knowledge about how the federal government works so that they could move from program to program or agency to agency and bring – that sort of experience to different programs. Generally, the senior executives are the ones that keep the corporation of government running, if you will, in terms of the financial oversight, uh, contractual oversight, human capital, uh, and other activities. I've sort of been fortunate throughout. One, I've been fortunate to have the opportunity to have worked in in all those different agencies, as well as a tour inside the White House. So I've got to see a lot of the federal government and I've always you know, sort of worked in, in the sort of the policy realm, working alongside senior political appointees, giving them sort of advice and support and assistance as to what is actually doable within the, within the federal government as we craft new policies. So the current position, uh, Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Environment and Energy Resilience is, you know, I've, I'm really excited for this, probably my last job in the federal government. And uh, it's just a great portfolio, uh, lots of things that interest me and, and matter to our nation and, uh, and to our military. Our, our job is primarily one of, of policy direction, but uh, in a couple of areas, we can back that up with money, which is really, I, li- I like a, an office formula- formulation that has policy up front and then a little bit of money. So we have installation energy policy, so installation uh, resilience, and we can support that with funding through the ERSIP account, so which is a military construction account designed for t- designed to build installation resilience. Same with operational energy. We have operational energy policy, and then we have the OECIF and uh, Operational Energy uh, Capability Improvement Fund. And, and next year, we'll have the Operational Energy Prototype Fund, which will allow us to to migrate technologies through various technology readiness levels and get them to the point that they can be integrated into a program of record. So uh, 
that it's a good it's a good blend between policy and uh, and being able to reinforce that with a little bit of money. Uh, right now, we're working on all things climate change, but I think we're going to talk about that in just a few minutes. Well, sir, that's exactly right. We're here to focus on climate change, and so climate change is going to have an enormous impact on the entirety of the world in the future, and and certainly an impact on readiness and resilience for our armed forces. We know we're going to have to take practical measures to combat this. So can you tell us a little bit about the differences between mitigation versus adaptation? No, thanks. That's a, that's a very important question and one that, that can easily get sort of confused. So adaptation is managing the unavoidable, right? And mitigation is avoiding the unmanageable. That's sort of a, a quick, pithy difference. So adaptation is taking the steps that we need to do to prepare ourselves, our institutions, our installations, and our country for the effects of climate change. All right, so adaptation measures could be seawalls, they could be different land use patterns, they could be uh, taking power lines and putting them underground as opposed to above ground where they could be disrupted by extreme weather events. So these are examples of adaptation. Mitigation, on the other hand, is reducing uh, our, our greenhouse gas emissions. So slowing and hopefully over time stopping the accumulation of greenhouse gases in the, in the atmosphere. Uh, in some cases, they can overlap. So if we build a secure microgrid on an installation, a cyber secure microgrid with on-site power generation, we've enhanced resilience to protect against a whole range of threats, whether it's an adversary cyber attack or an extreme weather event. And at the same time, we've reduced our carbon emissions through that through the on-site power generation. So they can overlap, but it's an important distinction to make. Thank you for the clarification, sir. I think that's really important to note. How do you think climate change is going to affect our military forces both at home and abroad? And, and how does it affect their equipment as well? Sure. So put simply, climate change is a threat to world peace. It's a threat to economic prosperity and well-being at home. And it's a threat to much of our past capital investment, whether that's uh, buildings or whether it's rolling stock or aircraft. So when we look to the future, we see climate change affecting our military forces at home and abroad in three different ways. So first, in terms of operational requirements, the international security logic of climate change is it will start to overwhelm the governing capacity of weak states, accelerating their sort of fall to ungoverned status, creating instability, a home for terrorists, uh, mass migrations, extreme nationalism, uh, all of these uh, threats to international security derived from the idea that the effects of climate change will overwhelm state governing capacity. Likewise, here at home, increased extreme weather events will heighten the demands for National Guard forces, Corps of Engineers, Air Force, and others to provide defense support for civil authorities. So we've already seen an uptick in guard time, uh, fighting forest fires, uh, deployed to floods and emergencies. Uh, same with the Air Guard. And of course, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers for its work on coastal and inland waterways is, is, is increasingly deployed. And so there's you know, some interesting sort of overall trends, but, but one trend, just I digress just a second for the Corps of Engineers, is past weather patterns are not necessarily an indicator of the future and that we're going to move from one extreme to the other. So a couple of years ago, 
the Mississippi River had one of the most severe droughts possible. And some district commanders actually had to use explosives and blow holes in the bottom of the, of the river so that there was enough depth for some of the barges to pass. Less than 12 months later, the same commanders had to blow holes in the levee to deal with one of the highest floods in the history of the Mississippi. So you're bouncing from extreme to extreme, and this will be one of the characteristics of a future defined by climate change. So, but going back to your question, so the first effect will be increased operational demands, either in primary mission for security and international um, defense and then domestic actions for uh, defense support for civil authorities. The second effect is going to be on our installations. So the extreme weather patterns will create floods, erosion, droughts, which lead to uh, range fires, which curtail our training, uh, buildings which are not able to withstand the, the types of wind shear that we're going to be experiencing in the future, a whole variety of effects. So for the Navy, of course, uh, uh, sea level rise, Navy and the Marine Corps, some of their installations will be affected by sea level rise. So there's whole there's whole, whole constellation of challenges that are affecting our installations, the vulnerabilities uh, that, that they're going to experience to uh, to climate change. And then finally, you know, our people and equipment, right? So uh, a lot of our equipment, its performance parameters are going to be degraded as a, as they are forced to operate in extreme heat or cold. Take Army aviation, for example, right? So if you're flying high and hot, the aircraft can hold less passengers or less uh uh, cargo than if you're sort of cold and, and low level. So as the heat parameters change around the world, as the humidity parameters change around the world, planning considerations for how many aircraft we need are going to change. Similarly for our, our, our Navy friends, um, look, a lot of the ships that are in the Gulf require air and water to cool the engines and the personnel. As the temperatures in the Gulf go up, at both uh, in, the, in terms of the water and the air, our ability to keep the ships cool it creates a tremendous energy load. So the, the cooling load consumes so much energy that the ship's performance is degraded. Uh, it can't move as fast, right? Or it's going to have to shave some power from its electrical or comms gear to power up the conditioning. So uh, you're going to see shifts and changes in the planning factors for the use of the current equipment. So I think that's a, a very comprehensive look at uh, some of the implications that are going to be the military is going to be facing as these changes come about. Um, one of the more significant products uh, you put out as Assistant Secretary of the Army for Installations, Energy and the Environment was an installation strategy. Can you tell us a little bit about why that document is so important and how it relates to climate change? Sure. So, you know, I no longer work for the Army, so I can't, I can't speak for the Army. I would just say it was our intent at the time of drafting and staffing that we would create one integrated Army installation strategy that would ride alongside the Army people strategy and the Army modernization strategy, and that it would then be integrated into the Army campaign plan and tracked and managed by the Army G3. Uh, so I think that has, uh, has happened uh, and it, it continues to gain momentum. So that, that document will help to guide and inform Army decisions, policies, investments on our installations for the next 20-some uh, years or more. In terms of climate change, so if you read that document, there's a list of assumptions in there, and one of them is very clearly that our infrastructure, both built and natural, will be affected by climate change. So it is a threat to Army installations. So that's down there as a planning assumption, which should guide Army decision-making 
over time. And there's a call out box that talks a little bit about uh, the effects of climate change on on army installations. And, um, you know, just a, a vignette. So when I briefed the strategy up through the department and ended up briefing the chief of staff of the army, uh, General McConville, we had a, an interesting discussion about climate change. And, you know, I don't want to get ahead of the chief or put words in his mouth, but it was a very engaging discussion. And he says, you know, we, we as an army got to take this seriously. So it's there. Uh, it, it's fact-based. It was put out in the previous administration and uh, it matters. Sir, I just want to pivot a little from uh, talking about ourselves and our force a little bit on the blue side, so to speak. Um, what kind of implications do you think climate change has for our adversaries, both both state and non-state? Right. Well, well, thank you. So this is an interesting question because our biggest adversary, China, is also the country we need to cooperate the most with in terms of global climate change uh, issues. And uh, um, there's no way around it. So as a, as a nation, how do we balance deterrence and protection against the need to engage? So the United States it historically has been the world's largest greenhouse gas emitter. So of the greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, uh, we're the largest single contributor. Currently, right now, China is the largest emitter uh, of any of the countries uh, out there. And so we need to work together. What is interesting, though, is, is China has a plan, right? They have a plan and they're weaponizing, if you will, their climate change initiatives. So not only does China have a plan to catch up and perhaps surpass us in key military technologies, which have been covered, you know, by other podcasts in, in this in this forum very well. They also have a plan to lead the clean energy revolution, right? So, a few years ago, uh, about ten years ago, China came up and they announced it publicly in their five-year planning process that basically the country that wins the clean energy revolution wins. Okay, uh, and uh, they're out to do that. So they are the world's number one producer of lithium ion batteries. They're the number one producer of wind turbines, the number one producer of solar panels. They also have the most uh, renewable energy capacity installed through wind and solar, and they're the largest exporter. Now, what's interesting about their exports is they use those exports with other components of national power. So they've combined uh, diplomatic information and economic to gain an advantage. So China provides distributed energy resources, solar panels, microgrids, wind turbines around the world. And they do it with a marketing package that basically says, country X, you are suffering because the United States is the world's largest, has been the world's largest carbon emitter. They're not in the Paris Accord. So this is sort of the messaging of the last couple of years. Uh, they don't care about you or your problems or the effects of climate change. Uh, we do. We're the country that's preparing for the future. We're the country that's helping you. So this is why it's so, you know, the president Biden's initiative to re-engage in the Paris Accord and to make sort of climate change a key topic of our foreign policy, as well as our economic and financing policy, uh, this sort of counters this Chinese narrative that all bad things come from the United States. In the Army's history, we sort of have a practical example of this. So years ago, uh, there was significant floods in Pakistan, and we diverted aircraft uh, combat aircraft, rotowing uh, aircraft assets from Afghanistan to provide humanitarian assistance to Pakistan. Well, uh, that was countered by an Al-Qaeda narrative that said the United States is here because they're guilty for having caused the floods through 
their uh, uh, greenhouse gas emissions and unwillingness to act on climate change. So what should have been a, a big win for the United States was somewhat tempered by this uh, informational warfare around our, at, at that time, sort of lack of uh, engagement on the, on the climate front. So hopefully th this, the situation is gonna change a little bit, that we're gonna be uh, in a better place in the, in the coming years. And, but, but we should recognize that our adversaries will use climate change in our actions or inactions as a, as a tool in international competition. Thank you for that answer, sir. That, that, that was great. Um, in the near future, there are going to be hot spots on the planet or, or locations where outdoor activity will be difficult or impossible during certain days of the year. One of the approaches to this challenge you've discussed with the Army War College is to own the heat. Can you break down for us what that means and how the DOD can pursue this? Yeah, so this is just an unfortunate reality of, of, of the future and something we have to prepare for. So 36 degrees Celsius wet bulb, if you're outside being a soldier, you will die. All right, that's the bottom line. You can't cool yourself uh, with, at, that, at that temperature and you will overheat. So given that, if our choice is, is to be inactive in those places and times, or do we have to be able to to still perform our, our mission. So just like years ago, we sort of, we realized we were behind on night vision and we committed to owning the night. We need to think about how do we own the heat? So this is tactical cooling. This is changing uh, perhaps some of the performance of our vehicles. Uh, can our, our vehicles be a, a, a place of respite and restoration? Uh, how about individual soldier cooling? Our tents and other structures? And how do we do this without creating a significant logistics burden uh, for our supply chain? And there's also going to have to be medical considerations. So how do we monitor soldiers? How do we quickly act if they start to be too hot? Uh, and also what happens if that vehicle or that cooling tent fails? And then, you, you know, you've got a limited period of time to get those soldiers to someplace, someplace safer. But if we do this right, it could it could give us a certain advantage because if our adversaries have to, you know, during those times and places, the heat's still affecting them. So they if they have to go to ground, uh, they lose their ability to maneuver. Uh, then and, and we keep ours and we we get an advantage. We're also going to have to own the heat in terms of uh, equipment and vehicle performance. I talked a little bit about that in terms of aircraft. A lot of our uh, equipment in the inventory is going to see its performance degraded. So how do we? How do we accommodate that, right? Uh, is it more pieces of equipment consuming more fuel or is it more efficient equipment? Is it uh, equipment that can uh, keep its, uh, you know, within its performance in, in greater temperature extremes? So there's gonna have to be some challenges on how we own the heat, both in terms of personnel and equipment. Oh, thank you, sir. That's that's a good look at um, a challenge for us that could actually potentially be an opportunity at least. Um, I want to circle back. You, you kind of talked some about the uh, Biden administration's approach to this. In January, the new administration issued uh, several executive orders regarding climate change. How do you think those EOs are going to impact the DOD and its mission sets? Does this, does this have any impact on some of the operational concepts we've seen, uh, like multi-domain operations, uh, like joint all-domain command and control or, or JADC2? So the, the new executive order, specifically 14008, is worth a read. I would encourage folks to, to, to pick it up. It is expansive. And I would tell everyone not to underestimate this administration's ambition when it comes to climate change. We are not starting where Obama left off and continuing forward. 
There is an intent here to embed climate change considerations into all that the federal government does. So I think it, there's a, a well-founded recognition that climate change, if unabated, represents an existentialist threat to this institution that we call America, right? It is gonna profoundly affect everything from our food production, our, our workforce, our jobs, where we live, how we recreate, if we recreate at all, uh, hunting, fishing, uh, the, the list goes on. So there has to, there's a, a level of seriousness here that I have not seen in the past. And that includes my time working on executive orders for uh, the Obama administration and, and actually serving in the Obama White House as a detailee. So, uh, so that's the first point, you know, make no mistake that, that the ambition is large and Frankly, it is critical that we as a nation start to incorporate climate change in, into all that we do. Look, you, you know, if we didn't emit another greenhouse gas tomorrow, if we just stopped emitting greenhouse gases today, uh, we have in the atmosphere enough greenhouse gases already, unfortunate phrase here, already baked in that the heat and the sea level and the effects of climate change will continue for another 100 to 150 years. All right, so that is already part of the global uh, carbon cycle equation. So um, we've got to make changes now or, uh, or it's gonna be too late. So here's the, here's the overall goal of the federal government and, and as an organization that works off of intent. So the intent here is that there will be zero carbon emissions from the entire United States by 2050, all right? A net zero carbon emissions. So this is a sort of an intellectual challenge for the military because right now we have major end items in the inventory, major pieces of equipment whose lifetime is expected to go past 2050 and they will be uh, burning fossil fuels. We're adding new pieces of equipment. So think future vertical lift, uh, you know, replacements for the Bradley and the, and the M1. So we as a, as a military are on track to continue carbon emissions past the stated goal of the president and past the stated advice of the scientific community. So given that, how do we think about those emissions? Well, I mean, that comes to two things. One is to go back to mitigation and reduce as much as possible the emissions uh, that we do produce. And then second, we uh, as a country and as an organization are going to have to start to think about sequestration, right? So how do we sequester carbon emissions? The good news for the Department of Defense is that we have a lot of land. And through uh, better land management practices, reforestation, uh, and other techniques, we can start to sequester a lot of the offsets for the carbon that we emit. Uh, we're going to have to find some other ways to sequester uh, over time, and that's going to be part of the future technological innovation challenge. Anyway, so I set the conditions, right? So, so this is not a passing executive order. I mean, this is a redirection of the economy so that we, as a country, can maintain the basic sort of lifestyle and parameters of America past 2050. Because if we don't act, uh, we're not going to have a lot of choice left, right? We're going to, this generation is going to consume everything and leave the generations that, that come after us with no choice, no option, right? And that's called generational equality or generational inequality. So in the executive order itself, look, basically it's divided into two sections. You've got the 100 series sections, which is more to what your question is ask, asking. And that is, look, the Department of Defense will factor in climate change in all of our strategies, policies, plans, and doctrine, All right, So that is the, 
the notion of the series 100 portions of the executive order. And uh, the major lift for that falls to the joint staff and OSD policy, okay? The 200 series of the executive order is about preparing DOD as an institution, the corporation, if you will, of the Department of Defense for, for, for climate change, both adaptation and mitigation. And a lot of that work falls on our team in, in, in OSD. So we are writing a, a climate action plan, uh, which is called for in the executive order and you know, due in, uh, in about a month's time, a little more than a month's time, the first draft to the White House. We're gonna follow that up with a federal agency sustainability plan, which will be due at, at the end of the summer. Uh, and uh, you know, again, those documents are going to depart from past practice and that we're gonna be much more expansive. Uh, so things like the social cost of carbon, some of will start to factor into some of the cost benefit analysis, this requirement to take a look at the current uh, inventory of equipment, a whole range of things. So it, it's not, the intent is not to embed climate change into a small group, uh, you know, a boutique group of, uh, of sustainability experts and nugs like myself, but to really take climate change and embed it into all the decision-making processes across the Department of Defense as an as an enterprise. And that'll, that's going to take some time. One thing that's going to be very important in doing that is, is rebuilding human capital to make a climate change informed workforce, right? So it can't just be a few policy people. It's got to be everybody from the energy managers down on our installations uh, through garrison commanders, unit commanders, ship commanders, wing commanders, uh, all of the services. So we have to, to rebuild and inculcate in this sort of climate awareness. Uh, and that shouldn't be part of our professional military education and, and other things. And, you know, just like, you know, we, we, we talked earlier on the podcast about how to own the heat, right? So our NCOs are going to have to own the heat. I mean, they're going to be the ones that the team leaders and the squad leaders that are going to be the folks that have to uh, keep their soldiers alive in a, in a very hostile climate. They're going to have to have those skills. Let's go into a little bit more detail. So you laid the problem out quite succinctly and you talked about, you know, what we need to do. Let's kind of talk about how we get there. So if I could give you top priority in the federal budget for spending right now, what would your focus be for the environment and energy resilience? So my top priority is what I just talked about. It's people, right? We've got to have a, enough sufficiently uh, trained and qualified people uh, at echelon across all the services, right? So uh, so, so that's my top priority, uh, making sure we have people to do the work, to do the plans, and then to have those, those, those people supported by planning tools and data to make data-driven, data-informed decisions. And also to have uh, the ability to do appropriate projections and assessments as to the future strategic environment, you know, that question about China, as well as the future operating environment. So we've got to get the foundation in place. Then the budget after that, I would like in terms of the installations to build installation resilience. And I think we're going to get some opportunities to do this so that we significantly increase the investment that goes into installation level uh, on-site power generations and cyber secure microgrids. All right. That's an all you know hazards response. So first of all, we have a, a statutory requirement to ensure energy resilience for all our major missions by 2030. All right, so that's the law from NDAA. We can do that 
and build resilience towards climate change and reduce um, greenhouse gas emissions all at the same time. Um, For the operating force, uh, there's a lot of things out there now. Uh, I I think that the promise is sort of twofold. One, in terms of planning tools. So particularly if you look at the the largest carbon emitters in the department are the the aircrafts, the the Air Force's large aircraft, the C-17s and the tanker fleet that are, are flying things all the way around the world. So some simple planning things. We, we fly aircraft empty to get from point A to point B to take a load to pick up something at point B and move it to point C. You know, the commercial industry would never fly empty. Likewise, uh, planning tools in terms of, you know, how the aircraft are, are controlled in flight, the amount of refueling. This is sort of, I think, the, the biggest these are the biggest consumers in, in the Department of Defense, and by extension, the point where we could probably make the, the most significant Im- improvements. And little things like, you know, if you go to an airport, and a lot of us haven't been to an airport in a long time, but every 737 now in the airport has the winglets. That improves the fuel efficiency of the aircraft. If you go to an, an airfield, you'll see those on some of the newer C-17s but not the rest of the heavy fleet. So simply putting those on would, uh, would, would make significant uh, energy savings. So we're gonna have to do some of the, those things first, focus on efficiency. And then long-term, we're gonna have to look at ways that we can just dramatically reduce our uh, fuel consumption, whether it's through hybridization of vehicles, on-site power generation through solar and other uh, items. Also, there's, this is an area for some very promising technology and innovation, right? So there's a lot of work that's being done out there to dramatically improve the efficiency of things like solar cells, to beam power from point to point, versions of small module reactors that are transportable. And these technologies are, uh, are very valuable, not only to the military, but also to the commercial sector and the private sector. And this goes back to my earlier comments about competition with China. And this is one of the things that the department can offer to the country. If we can get the super high efficient uh, solar cell that goes on the, on the wing of a drone and allows that aircraft to basically fly without refueling, that's a good thing for the military. And oh, by the way, that's a really good thing for the private sector and for the country. So uh, we're going to be spending more money in technology and innovation around uh, very promising technologies. I think that as a military, we will probably, recognizing that Department of Energy has the lead, but we will probably be a a partner with them for various nuclear technologies, both on our installations and, uh, and overseas. Uh, I think that, you know, I talked to my friends in the environmental community and, and frankly, you know, as my position, that you can't be concerned about climate change and opposed to nuclear power. Nuclear power has some, some significant drawbacks. The newer technologies have fewer drawbacks than in the past and a greater promise both to address climate emissions, build energy security, and to do so in a way that's, that, that's safe and to do so in a way that returns jobs to America, right? So, uh, so there's a lot of upside there. I think the department will play an increasing role but managing the, our risk and knowing what our expert, you know, the limits of our expertise. No, I think that's a, a excellent answer, sir, and it allows us start thinking forward about the future. And and kind of in that same vein, you know, we're a podcast that really focuses on the future. Um, and you've had this wide breadth of experience. Uh, so- 
So you're talking to future soldiers, government civilians who are in high school, middle school, maybe even, you know, like Matt and I's kids in elementary school right now. What advice would you give them? Why would they want to work in this field and, and with the government? So first of all, whether you're in uniform or you're a civilian, I mean, you embark upon a career of public service because of the sense of being something larger than yourself. And for me, that's a tremendous reward. And that's what I would offer to others. Uh, uh, this is not what you do to get rich, but if you want to feel like you're making a difference, uh, public service is still a good way to do it. Um, you know, for someone who t- I took my first oath to serve our country June 1st in, in 1982, I was about 10 days past my 18th birthday. And I've been privileged to take that oath many, many times since then. And uh, it, it always chokes me up a little bit because it, it it still matters to me. And events in our country the last few months have sort of been heart-wrenching, but I believe in public service. I believe that the government can be a force for good. And uh, I believe that working in concert with the academia and nonprofits and private industry, a mixed economy, that's the best way to go forward. And so, you know, that's sort of, if you want a sense of purpose, consider public service. Also in terms of generations, I mean, uh, I think uh, climate change has not been a, a, a topic of importance for sort of the boomers, and I'm a tail end of the boomers, uh, but it's, it's really important for the generations that, that have come after the boomers, and it's only going to grow in importance. And, uh, you know, if we as a military are not addressing climate change, if we're not serious about this, we're going to lose appeal to many future soldiers, right? They're just, they're going to say, look, if the military isn't on board with climate change, I don't want to serve. So we have a sort of a, we have an obligation to those future generations to act, but we also have to do it out of our own self-interest because we're a voluntary military. And if we're disconnected from future generations, if our position on climate change doesn't match their expectations, they're not going to want to join. I think that's very well put, sir. Um, We're going to move on now to what we call our rapid fire questions. These are three questions we ask all of our guests, and they're always the same. Uh, The first question is, what technology or trend keeps you up at night? So I would say in the context of climate change, that is the existing sort of fossil fuel infrastructure, particularly the internal combustion engine, right? It's just got so much presence in the market and so much momentum through a variety of uh, just market choice and tax breaks and other things that it's going to be hard to turn that around in time. So that's sort of the technology that keeps me up at night. Our next question is, what's what's something about you that most people might not know? Uh, well, I do have a few secrets that I try to keep, uh, most of them about a, a, you know, a misbegotten youth. But I would say uh, probably that uh, you know, I've been to 75 countries uh, between my time in the United Nations and the State Department. So I've lived and worked uh, and traveled in, uh, in, in 75 different countries. And part of that, my first job with the UN, I would just say, you know, as I is I took a job in a country that I didn't know where it was. So I was at graduate school and I got offered a job to go to Tajikistan. And this was in 1993. So there were no maps of the former Soviet Union disaggregated. So I accepted the job. And then I went to the library and got one of those really big atlases, you know, that's weighs like 30 pounds. And I turned to the continent of Africa and I started to look for Tajikistan in Africa. Anyway, I needed a little geography lesson then, and I'm, I'm much better at uh, geography now than I was then. 75 countries, that is massively impressive. 
our final question here, this gives us a little insight into the guests that we have on here. What's your favorite movie? Well, look, I'm not, uh, I'm not the biggest movie fan, but we do have family movie night. And I, I generally like whatever movie I'm watching with my family at the time. But if I had a movie, you know, in terms of a favorite movie, the movies that I always quote, and this will be sort of uh, telling my age, is I like the Dirty Harry movies, the Clint Eastwood Dirty Harry movies. And I like it because there's a quote I've taken from that that movie, and I, I often use it in real life, and I sometimes, you know, say it when I talk to myself. Everybody remembers, if you've watched the movies, and Clint Eastwood has a six-shooter, and he fires it, and then he's pointing at the guy, and he says, well, how many, you know, did I fire five or did I fire six? And then the guy does something stupid and Dirty Harry does what Dirty Harry does. But that's not the quote I like, right? The quote from those movies is, a man, it's not, sorry, it's not gender updated. A man's got to know his limitations, right? That's the quote from the movie that I like, which is sort of a reminder not not to be, uh, to, to close off your aspirations or your hopes or your dreams or your desires, but it's really just a reminder to me of, you know, don't do anything stupid. So, uh, uh, and, and that's, why, that's why I like the Dirty Harry movie. No, that's great. That's great. I just want to say thank you. Um, thank you for being here and talking climate change with us and going into detail on what is, uh, you know, a, a very important and significant challenge uh, for not just the military, but, you know, everyone on the planet going forward. Uh, we really appreciate you being here, being, a, you know, a friend to the mad scientist. So, so thanks for coming on the show today, sir. Hey, great. And, you know, by the time this podcast airs, the Department of Defense will have a new climate change website. Uh, we'll give you some information on that. I would encourage folks to go take a look at that. We've got a couple of documents that are coming out uh, over Earth Day weekend, uh, which will be up there. We're going to have some interviews with uh, department senior leaders, defense climate uh, assessment uh, across about 1,400 installations, a summary report. So there's going to be some good information up there, and I encourage you and your listeners to take a look. Absolutely. Uh, please check out those websites. We will have them up on our blog so everybody can click and, and, and get some good information on climate change. Uh, so once again, thank you for being here, sir. My pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for listening to The Convergence. I'd like to thank our guest, Mr. Richard Kidd, Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Environment and Energy Resilience. You can connect with Mad Scientist through Twitter at ArmyMadSci. And don't forget to subscribe to our blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil.